The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to start by asking you a question that you might have to do a little bit of digging for, a little bit of self-analysis. What is the most defining moment in your journey of faith? What is the most defining moment in your journey of faith? What has been the pinnacle of your relationship with God? Maybe you might think about to the time where God had saved you, where he had revealed himself to you, where he showed you his grace and mercy and love, and you overjoyed in his presence. Maybe you think of a time where you went to a camp for a weekend or a week and felt so close to God that you could touch him. Maybe it was when you went on a mission trip in high school and God shattered all of your ideas of him in this little box. Maybe the pinnacle, the the defining moment of your journey of faith was when you were a part of a great Bible study. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's a really interesting chapter because the author talks about the defining moments in the journey of the faith of the saints from the Old Testament. And as you look through Hebrews 11, it lists out these defining moments of the saints. It starts at the very beginning, and it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up and did not see death. By faith, Noah built an ark when it didn't rain. By faith, Abraham followed the calling of God into a foreign land that he had never seen before. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive in her old age. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This goes on for 33 verses talking about the defining moments and the journey of faith of God's people. And then it gets to Jacob. Guess what the defining moment is in the life of Jacob? If you're a Bible scholar, maybe you have a few guesses. We've talked about the life of Jacob in the past two years. Maybe it would be the time where where he was at Bethel and God himself comes and talks to Jacob and he sees angels ascending and descending. Maybe that would be the pinnacle of his faith. Or maybe it would be when Jacob is coming back and he's coming back to see his brother Esau and he wrestles with an angel of the Lord until he blesses him and then he gets his hip socket put out of place and he is called Israel by God. Maybe it would be the time where that we talked about just a few uh, weeks ago in which Jacob left the familiarity of Canaan and took his family and everything he owned and moved to Egypt in faith. Those would be some of the things I would guess the writer of Hebrews would pull out, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews pulls out as a defining moment of Jacob's faith. This is what the writer of Hebrews says is the defining moment of the faith of the patriarch Jacob. Hebrews 11.21 By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's it. By faith, when he was dying, he, worshiped, or he blessed the sons of Joseph and then bowed and worshipped over the head of his staff. 
That seems so anticlimactic, doesn't it? Like he's not wrestling lions or doing anything cool. He just blesses his grandkids. And that is the defining moment of his faith. This is important for us to hear. Our defining moment, the pinnacle of our faith journey, might be yet to come. The defining moment of our faith journey might be when we are in a nursing home. The defining moment of our faith journey might be when we need assistance to use the restroom or to go and take a shower. The defining moment of our faith journey might be when we are bedridden and gasping for air. You see, how you die matters a lot. It matters to God, and I really do believe it matters to you. And so today we want to ask the question, how then shall we die? Francis Schaeffer, if you know who he is, wrote a book, How Then Shall We Live? We're going to ask the question, how then shall we die? If you would please open to Genesis chapter 47. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 41. If you're in the Children's Bible, it is page 80. Um, If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll have Chris bring one to you. Does anyone need one? Okay. Um, We will be looking into it in depth, and so please make sure you have it. Just to kind of recap, to catch you up to speed, um, the, the story of the life of Joseph is really a subset of the story of the life of Jacob, his father. And so I I can't rehash all of what went on in the life of Jacob and Joseph, but basically here's what you need to know. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, He went to Egypt. God raised him up to be the second most powerful man in Egypt. There was a famine in the land. Everyone was hungry. Everyone was coming to ask for food. Joseph was in charge of dispensing the food. Joseph's brothers come who sold him into slavery. He gives them some tests to see if he can trust them, and he can And he's granted them forgiveness, and so they're reconciled. So Joseph tells his brothers, go back to the promised land, get your father, and get everything he owns, and get your families, and come on down to Egypt and to the land of Goshen, that I can take care of you. They've been in the land 17 years now, and as we'll see, it has been a good uh, 17 years for them. But Jacob is approaching death, and we see his final words, the defining moment of his life. And that's what we're going to dig in today. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we want to live well for you. We want to die well for you. But we can only do it by your grace, God. Lord, I confess, I look back at certain stages of my life and I think my journey was best there. It will never live up to that again. And yet the most defining moments are our faith might just be before us. And so God, pray that you would strengthen us, that you would guide us, that you would inform us, that you would transform us, that we would be people that not only live well for you, but die well for you with great hope to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So there's three things I want to look at today. My hope is that we, like Jacob, would die longing for God's kingdom, that we would die blessing God's people, and that we would die trusting God's will. Let's start with the first. We want to die longing for God's kingdom. Look in verse 27 of Genesis 47. Again, it's page 41 in the Red Bible. It starts like this. 
Thus Israel, now <laughs> Israel is referring to Jacob. Jacob, Israel, same name, okay? Same person, different name, sorry. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now let's pause here. Jacob takes his family that is living in the promised land that is in famine. They are starving to death. They move down to to Egypt, to the land of Goshen. And for 17 years, they are living a life of luxury while the Egyptians around them are starving. Okay? And so they have a plethora of food. They are multiplying greatly. They are becoming a great nation. Their kids are having kids, are having kids, are having kids, which is a great blessing, both in that age and in this age. They are experiencing the divine blessing of God in Egypt and the region of Goshen. And that's what makes what comes next a little bit surprising. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die... He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he, Jacob, said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. You know, Goshen had been good for Israel. It had been good for the family. Why was he so insistent that he would be buried in Canaan, buried with his fathers? I mean, to be honest, when I read this at first glance, it seems a little bit selfish, doesn't it? It seems a little bit selfish that he would say, hey, I want you to interrupt your life for weeks upon weeks to take my bones up to Canaan, find the right spot, and bury me there, and then journey back. It seems a little bit selfish that he would want to be buried in an area where his children can't go and visit the grave. But you can see he is persistent that he would be buried in the promised land with his fathers. And the question is why? Well, Israel's request of Joseph is a reflection of his longing for and faith in the promises of God. God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give their descendants the land of Canaan, the promised land. Jacob believed that Goshen was not their permanent home. He believed that their permanent home would be in the promised land of Canaan. Now with that said, Jacob also knew from his father and his grandfather, that the promised land of Canaan pointed to a greater promised land, a land promised to the people of God when their life draws to an end on this earth. It is an eternal promised land. We read about it in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. You can follow along on the screen behind me. We read this. These all died in faith, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Israel's longing for Canaan was a longing for the city of God, for the kingdom of God, for heaven. He wanted to be buried back in Canaan because it was a reminder that he was destined for a promised land that would never perish. Israel, who had the best the world had to offer in the land of Goshen, knew that it did not compare to the promised land that God had promised him. Last week, I was doing a Bible time with my kids, and um, we do it as they're laying in bed, falling asleep, and we were looking at Romans 8, 18, and it says this. It says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. Me and my seven-year-old and five-year-old boy were trying to unpack this passage and we're trying to put it in terms that they would understand. So we started to put it in a food illustration because that's the Jackson boy love language, it's food. And so I asked him, ladder football, and I asked him, I said, so Corbin, what is your least favorite food? Immediately he said, rice. So, okay, great. What is your most favorite food? Immediately he said, pizza. So I said, great. So if you had to eat one little piece of rice to get a week's worth of pizza, would it be worth it? And he hemmed and hauled a little bit. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, the point I was trying to communicate, and I think you understand, is that a piece of rice is a distant memory to a child who has a buffet of pizza, right? I mean, it's not even worth comparing that piece of rice to that buffet of pizza. Similarly, one day we will enter the promised land and we will look back at the best this world has to offer and we will look at the best moments of this life and we will say, that was just a piece of rice. Let's be honest, we live in the land of Goshen, don't we? We are extraordinarily blessed. I don't think any of you here are starving to death. If you are, let us know. Hopefully we'll have deacons that can help you. Everyone here has different clothes on their back than they had last week that I've seen, unless you forgot what you wore last week. Everyone here has a car that they can drive. Most of us live in nice houses. Some of us even have lake houses. Looking online, it was interesting. If, if you're here and you make over $13,700 a year, you're richer than 90% of the world. If you make 45000 a year, you're richer than 99.43% of the world. If you make over $65,000, you're richer than 99.85% of the world. You're in the top 0.15% of the world economically. We live in the land of Goshen, don't we? We are so extraordinarily blessed by God. And these luxuries are nice. They're gifts from God. But compared to heaven, they're like a piece of rice. Have you become content with the riches of Goshen? Have you become content squeezing all, uh, everything out of this life that you can to entertain yourself to death? 
buying whatever you can to make yourself happy, living for the weekend? Or do you realize that all of this is just a dim shadow compared to the promised land that is to come? You see, if we die longing for heaven, then it allows us to keep life's priorities, life's suffering, and life's riches in the proper perspective. My hope is that we would die longing, not content with the riches of Goshen, not grasping for the riches of Goshen, but die longing for the kingdom of God. Secondly, we should die blessing God's people. Verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So some time had passed. Dad got really sick. Joseph comes, brings his sons to say their final goodbyes. Verse 2. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. In this passage, Jacob acknowledges that he has been blessed by God. It's the three promises that start with the letter P that we've talked about before. Do you remember them? God blesses Jacob with his presence. Jacob says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and blessed me. God blesses Jacob with the people. He says, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Talking about procreation. And I will make of you a company of peoples. God also blesses them with a property. I will give you this land to your offspring for you as an everlasting possession. And so Jacob acknowledges that he's been blessed by God, and he's going to spend the rest of this chapter and most of next chapter blessing his children, blessing his grandchildren. But what we see here is Jacob acknowledges first and foremost that he can bless the younger generation because he has first and foremost been blessed by God. Jacob recalls the blessing of God because he knows that it is the foundation that allows him to bless others. And then something interesting happens. Speaking to his son Joseph, Jacob says this in verse 5. He says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are grown men. They're in their mid-20s. Joseph is probably approaching 50. And Jacob is expressing his intention to legally adopt his two grandchildren. And they will be as much his children as Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's blood children, are. And I know this may seem bizarre, but The reason why Jacob is adopting Joseph's two sons is that they might have an inheritance in the land, that they might become part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And through this, Joseph, in a way, will receive a double inheritance of the promised land. It goes on, verse 6. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Paddan, To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her more on, 
I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob is just recalling his love for Joseph's mother, Rachel. Now, as it moves on, we need to understand that they're now entering into a legal adoption process, okay? Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, it would be similar in a wedding. A pastor would say, you know, who gives this woman to be married to this man? You know, her mother and I. Verse 9, Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Jacob has brought Joseph and his sons to him. He has adopt, he's adopting Joseph's sons that he might bless them. And so the question is, how we, might we bless our children? How might we bless our grandchildren? How might we bless the younger generations of the church? We can't give them parcels of the promised land. At least I can't. Maybe you can. And so how can we bless the younger generations? How can we bless our children? Well, there are four things that Jacob displays here that I want to point out very quickly of how we can bless the younger generations. First, share your testimony. Jacob shares of how God appeared to him at Luz. This is probably Jacob's conversion story. If you are in Christ, you have a story to tell. Not only of how God has brought you to himself, but how throughout the years, God has been faithful to provide for you, to protect you, to show you his love and his grace. And as you have opportunity to share that with the younger generations, it is an encouragement to them. It is a reminder to them that God is nothing new. That God has been faithful throughout history and he will continue to be faithful and gracious and generous throughout the rest of history. So we share our testimony. Secondly, we reassure, reassure God's promises. Jacob repeats to his children the promises of God. God's promised presence, his promised people, and a promised land. We too have similar promises. God promises his presence with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God promises a people in the church, a community, a family to gather with, to worship God, to encourage, to support one another. And he gives us a promised land in heaven for all eternity. Younger generations are blessed when older generations remind us of God's promises and remind us and tell us the stories of his faithfulness throughout the decades. Thirdly, display your gratitude. Verse 11, And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Gratitude is something that is very hard to fake, especially with family, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed this, but as people grow older, they kind of go three different directions. Sometimes people grow bitter because they think life has cheated them out of what they deserve. Sometimes people grow proud of what they have accomplished in life, and they'll tell you all about their grandchildren all the time. And yet others grow thankful, knowing that everything that they have gotten, every good gift is a gift from God. Every year we go on this men's retreat 
Um, and you saw the picture up there earlier. And we actually go and we, we, we combine with other churches in our denomination from Wisconsin. There's uh, about six or seven of them. And it is an amazing 24 hours every year. But one of my favorite things is going and being with the other churches because we are a pretty young congregation for the most part. Lots of young families, young dads. And when we go to these, this conference, we get to be with men that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s. Men that still love Jesus. Do you know how encouraging it is to stand next to a man that is 80 years old worshiping Christ? How encouraging it is to, to sit with a man who has been through thick and thin of life and tells you God is faithful. You should hear what God has done in my life. The older generation can be a great encouragement, a great blessing to the younger generation. Fourth, pray for blessing. Verse 12, we haven't read this yet. Verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, his sons, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, Israel crossing his hands is, is a very important point, and we'll get back to it later. But I want to focus on verse 15 and 16 for now, because this is a rich blessing. It could be an entire sermon. And so listen closely. Verse 15. And he, Israel, blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of of the earth. What a beautiful blessing. Let my shepherd, my redeemer, bless these boys. If you're here and you're a father, God calls you to be a spiritual leader in your family. And I think the thing that most undermines our calling to lead our families in the worship and praise of God is shame. Sometimes we're shamed over past failures as a father. Sometimes we're ashamed of ongoing sin in our life. And it, and it undermines our ability and our desire to lead our families in the worship of God. But you know what? If anyone had a reason to be ashamed, it was Jacob. If you know the life of Jacob, you know Jacob was not a very good family man. Jacob was not the kind of man that you would want your daughter to marry. Jacob deceived his father and his brother, selling uh, the birth or gaining the birthright through a cup of stew. Jacob was a polygamist who married four other women. Who, who wants their, their daughter to be one of four wives to a husband? Jacob was a coward when his daughter Dinah was raped. He didn't go and defend her. Jacob failed as a father, showing favoritism to Rachel's sons causing the other sons to sell Joseph into slavery. The list could go on. Jacob was not the best guy in the world. But he was able to bless his sons for one reason only. Because he had been blessed by God. Because he had been blessed by the God 
before whom his fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been his shepherd all his life long, the angel who had redeemed him from all evil. Men, God is calling you to bless your children. It could be as simple as praying over them at night, reading this very passage over them at night, petitioning and praying for God to bless your children. And so we can bless the younger generations through sharing testimony of God's goodness, reassuring of God's promise, displaying our gratitude for God, and praying for God's blessing. And so we should die longing for God's kingdom, die blessing God's people, and finally die trusting God's will. Now, remember from verse 13 and 14, Joseph positioned his older son, Manasseh, in front of Joseph's right hand, okay? Joseph did this because the right hand was the son that would receive the main blessing. You see, that older son, Manasseh, would receive the majority of Joseph's attention throughout his life. He would have received the majority of Joseph's instruction, his wealth, his deepest affections. Joseph's great desire is that his son would receive the main blessing. This was the tradition of the culture. This was the hope of Joseph. But then Israel crosses his hands. Verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, the younger son, it displeased him, displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way. My father, since this one is firstborn, put, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. We serve a cross-handed God, a God that promotes the people that the world wouldn't promote. If you look at the line of the Savior that was promised to Abraham, God sends the Savior through barren Sarah and not fertile Hagar. God sends the Savior through Jacob and not his older brother Esau. God sends the Savior through homely Leah and not beautiful Rachel. God sends his Savior through rebellious Judah and not the older brother Reuben. And the cycle goes on throughout history. God sends the Savior through Rahab, through Ruth, through David, the the little shepherd boy, the youngest of the sons. God is continually crossing his arms, defying cultural norms throughout the Old Testament. And the question is, why? Why can't God just play the game? Why can't he just do things as we would expect him to do? And the reason is, he's pointing us to the gospel. He's pointing us to our Savior. You see, in the incarnation, God crossed his arms. The Savior was not born royalty. He was not a man of Jerusalem. He was born of a Galilean teenage girl in a stable. And then most gloriously, God crosses his arms at the cross. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus deserves the love of God, the pleasure of God, the favor of God, the blessing of God. Because of our rebellion, we deserve the wrath of God. 
the justice of God, the displeasure of God. But at the cross, God crosses his arms. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. We have a cross-handed God who crosses our will constantly for his glory and for our good. We see further display of Jacob's trust in God. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather, rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. What a beautiful saying. I am about to die, but God will be with you. Let me, I'm running out of time, so let me end with this. I know many of you would argue with me on this, but country songs are great sermon illustrations. Can I get an amen from anyone? Uh, yeah. There's a song that came out uh, a few years ago, uh, Tim McGraw sang it, called Live Like You Were Dying. And I just want to read you some snippets from it, okay? It says, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end. How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what do you do? And he said this, I love deeper. I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness I've been denying. He said I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. I became a friend a friend would like to have. I finally read the good book, and I took a good, long, hard look. And then he says this, and this is the point that I want to communicate. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. What does that mean? This summer we read a marriage study book about reverse engineering your marriage, about looking at the end goal and going that direction starting now. Why would we not reverse engineer our life? You see, dying starts now, doesn't it? I mean, you are now 30 minutes or 40 minutes closer to death than when I started this sermon, right? You're, you're a day closer to death than, than when it was 25 degrees outside. You're a week closer to death than when Chad preached. We're all dying. The question is, will we live like we are dying? Let this be your defining moment. Die longing for God's kingdom. Die blessing God's people. Die trusting God's will. Let's pray. Lord God, all of us are wasting away. All of us are approaching death. We want to die faithful, God. We want to die longing for your kingdom, remembering that this temporary life is fleeting compared to the glory that is set before us. We want to die blessing the younger generations, God, telling them of your goodness and faithfulness. We want to die trusting your will. God, we pray for your strength to do that, Lord. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.